This eye thing reaches to push her bone into hyperplasticity. Meat flows and the hip morphs into the blade of an entrenching tool. Lick and sample. Residual unlife screamed into clotted silence as if for all the co-authored papers we planned. Pet's head distends into an ellipsoid skull with brachiating horns, sensate, greedy and incohate. She's pulling me as hard as I can fist her as her trachea dissolves. Some sweet discharge engorges my hand and I whisper something lovely into a place I surmise her ear used to be. The grains ignore me. They know I would not be good for them. That was awesome. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is kind of starting anywhere I would like to pick your brain about have you written poetry before played with it because because one of the one of the authors it reminds me of when and we can talk a little bit broadly about about the surface effect that that you described to me but one of the poets it reminds me of one of my favorites is Gerard Manley Hopkins who obviously you know he he plays yeah, I've off read of a, a bit, and uh-huh. uh, that's interesting. Uh, that I've read a bit of Jeremy Hutton mainly when I was kind of teaching, kind of first introductory level mm-hmm. kind of literature um, at the OU. I mean, I really loved his, you know, what he was doing with the sonnet form, for example. Yes. You know, yes. amazing. I published one poem. I, I do write poetry, but not, you know, I don't claim to be, you know, particularly. I mean, I published one poem in Gobbit Journal, Gary Shipley's okay. journal. I think if it's any good, it probably owes as much to Gary's editing <laughs> as my, my poetic ability. I think of myself mainly as a prose person, but perhaps with kind of pretensions above my station. You know, I, 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 <laughs> I am, as you say, I'm interested in surface effects mm-hmm. and kind of disjunctions in language. So... I enjoy kind of clean prose as well. I enjoy, I mean, I enjoy realist fiction. Right. You know, but that's not what I do and I can't really do it. And I I find when I'm, you know, the thing I want to do most is kind of use language as kind of material. Right. And cut it up and break it up and, you know, insert other layers, other kind of levels of discursivity or whatever. Yeah. Um, At least that, that was the kind of, you know, I knew I wanted to write something like that at this kind of length with this sort of subject matter. I mean, that, I think my ambitions were about as vague as can be before this thing started to um, cohere into something, you know, like a book. Did you start writing it kind of from the middle or like you say, did you have different extracts and then you put it together yeah. or, or did it just kind of flow as, as um, it is? No, it didn't flow. <laughs> I think getting into some kind of sequential order was pretty hard. I think, as I explained, that I did have 
I did have the kind of some tenuous ideas about the kind of world I wanted to write about and what and the kind of apocalyptic themes I wanted right. to introduce and also the, the kind of more embodied, erotic, fetishistic stuff I wanted to, to do. So all that was in there, but how it would actually cohere into a story and stylistically, that fell together fairly late. So the opening section, which I think was pretty important, came together around... 2019 I read it as a paper in fact at a oh wow conference in Toronto speculative attunement or something it's um um anyway so yeah um I was gonna yeah I was gonna write about electronic music Mm -hmm. um and I think I think I was gonna write around electronic music sound and masochism and then I realized Amy Island had just made my paper redundant because she'd written about something far far better so I, I just kind of went with this the theory fiction I was working on since it was it needed to be worked on and you know it seemed like a good good place to uh, to try it out. That's interesting that you say that because that makes some sense of the footnotes on noise that we see yeah, yeah. towards the end of the the novel. And I guess that that segues into a, another question: how how do you feel the footnotes? in in the work cohere or what do you think about the role that they play or is, okay. is that yeah yeah that's good uh, by the way it's tuning speculation yeah yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I, we, we went to a t-spec yeah. on the occult in indiana one year yeah no, it was so. a really great event scott backer came which nice you know it was the first time we met and uh, we, we got to hang out in my condominium so you know, <laughs> that was good good times you know, I wanted to introduce, obviously, kind of elements of theory, elements of philosophy, mm-hmm. other writing, visual art, cinema. I mean, the footnotes were simply there, in part, not to alienate the reader. I mean, I, I wanted, in a sense, I wanted the influences on it to be legible and kind mm-hmm. of usable. So there's, there's an element of usability there, rather like, you know, if you're writing an academic paper. Right. I kind of wanted those strata to be visible. But I think also I wanted to be able to kind of use these modules as if, the, you know, as if they were like little machines that they could kind of, you know, operate independently within the text. So I kind of put them there, I laid them out, uh-huh. and the text kind of provides a kind of environment, hopefully, in which they can discover new possibilities. I think preserving their integrity, seeing where they come from is kind of part of that. Right. Um, no, I, I suppose I need to have done that. But I mean, obviously, it, it would have kind of, you know, there would have been all sorts of issues about attribution. I, I, I'd have had to have written it somewhat more elusively, I think, if, if I right. that. And I actually wanted the joins to be visible. It is a segmented text. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting that you can read it straight through without checking the notes. When you layer those in, it does yeah. kind of lead to different lines of flight it adds it adds a little bit more depth different layers that yeah. that that you wouldn't necessarily see if you hadn't checked in on on because because the the quotations you use are fairly sparse but they but they're jam packed and so yeah. so the quotations too had to have been highly selective about sure. what you wanted to include and and not yeah. I think also it's a, there's a kind of personal aspect to that, that in a way it's also a way, one of the ways in which I kind of position myself within the text. 
as if you like uh, a speaker or a, a thinker or a discussant, whatever. And I think, you know, this kind of relates to the kind of embodied elements within the text that it, it you know, a lot of it's dealing with very a kind of abstract violence, I suppose, for want of a better mm. or an ontology of violence. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think without a sense of positioning of, of the subject, that, that is myself or the characters, in a sense that ontology would be kind of spurious somehow. So there's a kind of, I think they fulfil multiple functions. I mean, in a sense, I, I needed to kind of, I think it would just would have been extremely dry piece of a dry kind of literary experiment without that sense of, of you know, flesh and thickness. And one of one aspect of that is, is in a sense, to position myself in it. To, and also obsessions, you know, like, I don't know, whatever, seeing um, Jarman Sebastian or, um, you know, just being kind of thrown by how he represents the male body. I kind of wanted that in there, you know, because I think it communicated with some of the other things, the other particularly erotic elements within the text. You know? Right. So... The segmenting, the segmentarity, the the um, footnotes are all kind of fulfilling multiple functions, and they're all about how you know, in a sense, giving it, hopefully, giving it some kind of energy beyond the merely kind of formal abstract violence that it also addresses. I guess one of the last questions I'll ask about the citations, Cooper. You you were telling me to watch the oh, meshes in the afternoon, I believe, right? Yes, yeah. or meshes uh, of the afternoon. Something Meshes like that. The afternoon, yeah. Have you seen that, Coop, or uh, or yeah. did you just recognize it? Oh no, I well, I had seen the film when I was in grad school. Okay, it's a very interesting little black and white film that kind of shows. I mean, just what you can achieve with minimal, with very minimal <laughs> things, you can commun- still communicate. Yeah, yeah. Without you know, because I th- believe the film is has no dialogue whatsoever, mm. if I recall. But it's you know, it's been 10, 15 years since I actually watched it, but. Do you want to say a, a word or two about that? Because you did mention there are some cinematic yeah. subtexts or influences. You even quote, I believe, from Deleuze's Cinema 2 or Yeah, maybe a very selectively because it's not a text that I know well. But I guess sort of cinema is important. I mean, I can think of, you know, certain experience, you know, some of my most important experiences, you know, the most memorable experiences that I've had have been in the cinema. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think seeing Videodrome for the first time, you know, just sort of knocked me sideways. I can't say I liked it. I didn't know uh, what to think. You know, it was yes. just complete absence of any kind of norms or right. standards of appreciation. You know, just bypassed all that and went straight to the gut. I think there was a bomb scare in London at the same time when, when I went out with my friends. It was quite a while back, you know. So, so that all added to the... Comp- being, you know, completely upended and destabilised. And, you know, I, I, I was completely indifferent to the fact that we, we might be blown up. I, I just <laughs> couldn't, pro- I, I literally couldn't process this movie. I mean, obviously right. I've, so, you know, I think Meshes of the Afternoon is just a kind of sort of surrealism, I guess, that I love. And mm. I just love the sort of the imagery and the way it's processed, replicated. I was collaborating on a work with a, an artist who works in synthetic biology, art and synthetic symbio, Katie Connor. Okay. And she suggests, in fact, she suggested 
incorporating that in, into my tech because it also embodies a kind of replicative structure, which is simply similar to the kind of replicative structure that you find in, in biological systems. So there's all sorts of you know, layering going on there. But I mean, there's also, also the idea of the mesh became important as a kind of, I guess, a simple way of doing a sort of ontology of multiplicity right. without actually having to talk in any kind of length about about such things, you know, it's just right. kind of without- place, placeholder for some very complex system that sort of generates in a you know, distributed and uh, unguided way. You know, just resonances emerge between the hooded figure you see on the in the road or in meshes, and for example, Beckett's hooded auditor in Not I. So these things just kind of, yeah, they kind of develop resonances that I exploited later in the book. They help build it really. One of the other things I was thinking about reading because you do have a, a kind of the, there are characters that proliferate, and you said a, a little bit about about that earlier, and I'll get back to it. But first, I wonder what you think about, for example, in the cold open, the I thing. Say a little bit about how the I and the you, the shifters in your story work. I don't know whether it's a kind of literary tick, but I'm kind of obsessed with addressing, I seem to be obsessed with the second person. Mm. Yeah, I started doing that in a text called Ocean, Letters from the Ocean Terminus, which I did for um, Suhail Malik for the uh, Ninth Berlin Biennale. It was for a collection on, on the post-contemporary. That was a kind of similar sort of mashup, mixture of fiction and theory, horror, um, speculative sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the way using you rather than um, you, rather than I or he or she just kind of opened up the addressee you know for Mm -hmm. example obviously I could avoid there's no sort of there's no gender mark so for example the the you of the ocean terminus is is you know effectively genderless although there may be implications about about gender sort of dropped along the way it's also singular and plural right yeah yeah exactly and it which is very yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that's actually extremely important for um, uh, snuff memories because there, there are multiple versions of the same character. Right. You know, this is alternates. Yeah, and I've kind of felt I needed, a, I think, for something of this size and, you know, I mean, it's not a long book, but in terms of it's long, I guess, for the kind of material that it includes, I kind of needed some sort of narrator-like figure. You know, so the other challenge was to, in a sense, not not only break up the the world making, mm-hmm. and in a sense sabotage my attempts to sort of write, you know, something that could be, you know, that could be recognised as set in a particular world. Right. Um, so analogous to that, I wanted to kind of break up the eye, also sabotage all attempts for the narrator to kind of cohere as a subject. I think the narrator probably does, despite my best efforts, but that's that's <laughs> another matter. So I think you asked me in our correspondence about the, the Q operator. Yes. That's actually quite a hoary old reference to a classic article by Derek Parfit on personal identity. Okay. I think back from the 70s. And because Parfit actually doesn't believe that there are such, doesn't believe in personal identity. Okay. <laughs> some kind of some kind of Buddhist. But 
what he does in the paper, he's he's kind of working within the kind of Lockean theory of personal identity, where identity is kind of constructed through memory, through relations of memory and memories to earlier experiences. And that he wants to be able to appeal to a relationship of memory that doesn't presuppose that what is being remembered is being remembered by the same person who's doing mm. the remembering. So he develops this concept called cue memory, and you have a cue memory when you know some some experience happened at an earlier time, and there's certain appropriate relationships between that experience and the current memory state. Gotcha. <laughs> so in a sense, it's just a way of being being agnostic about about whether what is being cue-remembered or cue-intended um, for that matter was or will be related to the subject doing the remembering or intending. It, Interesting. It, it kind of, I suppose I, you know, could have had a relation, I could have had a reference to Parfit in the text, but I just decided I wanted the, I just wanted that to work at a textual level. Right. In a sense, just... You know, in a sense, just to indicate that the the cue remembering or cue whatevering, in a sense, is not functioning in you know is functioning in a more general or abstract way than simply right. remembering or or thinking. And hopefully, that's in, that becomes sort of implicit in the text. It's just a way of throwing the spanner in the works, you know, both linguistically but also ontologically in terms of you know what we understand this narrator to be, what kind of entity he or, he or she is i kept my my eye open whenever the cue yeah. came, came out whenever something was being cued and i wonder if, if that even is related to the cue if it's if it is about like a cueing like a cueing up of a of a playlist or of, of yeah it could like be that. a kind of cueing in a yeah certainly in a kind of um data structure like mm-hmm. a stack you know an array you know and that probably permits that kind of reading too have you engaged much with Vonnegut's work? Because I'm thinking, yeah, of, sure. Um, in particular, I was thinking Time Quake and Breakfast of Champions because in oh, those, those works, yeah, you have I haven't Vonnegut read those, the writer. I've read a lot of Vonnegut, you know, back in the day, but not right. those two, which is it's funny because, yeah, so you have this weird triangulation between Vonnegut, the writer, mm. I guess, writer, narrator, yeah, and his, you know, Kilgore Trout is kind of his sort of also representative in the fiction often right his alter ego within the text is Kilgore trout and then he also inserts himself into the book so there's vonnegut the narrator vonnegut the character and then vonnegut through Kilgore trout does Kilgore trout crop up in the sirens of titan he probably does he is a repeating he's repeats throughout the his work several times in different forms and shapes but yeah he's he's a through line he has those names that he returns to Dwayne Hoover yeah. or I forget the others but yeah a bit like William Burroughs and um mm. there's got a character called Lee or is it Inspector Lee or something like that who kind of functions as a sort of placeholder for the author yeah yeah when you when you were talking about the uh, whole narrative sort of style or approach that's the first place my mind went and I think too just because of associating the short stories Vonnegut has Bagumbo Snuffbox. So I was wondering yeah. if that was even perhaps a direct reference. No, I don't. No, I mean, I mean, Snuff's obviously, re- you know, just a reference to a style of pornography involving right, right. death. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> to put it, you know, bluntly. Right. Um, 
and you know the book's very much about about death in various guises mm-hmm. so you know that that that's um you know that that sort of became central to the whole way way the way the book worked the way the characters worked as well mm-hmm. you know as as you know as having some kind of vector associated with them line of flight or whatever i was also wondering if now this it's probably way off the base, but I was wondering of other meanings of snuff. The, the other meaning I, I think of, isn't it a form of tobacco? Like, yeah. To pulverize tobacco. tobacco. Yeah. yeah. But Hegel I, used to do snuff in his lectures. He'd be, did he? Yeah. Famous. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it was extremely important in, in sort of 18th century, um, you know, mercantile life. I mean, I don't know where, where you got it. I think, yeah. So, because I know... Um, yeah, no, that'd be that'd be interesting to pursue. Yeah, I just never even thought about inhaling tobacco. It's always been just something that you either chew on or you you smoke. But I guess there's nothing to prevent the body's miraculous that way, right? Just to talk about the mesh and the interfacing right, that, yeah. that we have with different substances and huh, indeed different. Uh, to ask about the characters, I tried to list them all, but two that I was interested in, especially towards the end, was yeah rigor and pilot and i was wondering if this may be biased because of rereading your work on post-human life but i was wondering if rigor and pilot had to do with sort of uh i guess what's the best way to say it sort of like well queuing up a, a subjectivity and then the embodied subject is that simplifying a little too much or you know i i, you- I mean there's certainly a lot of i think pilots kind of a version or or probably one of the versions or alternate person phases, shall we say, of, of the narrator. Gotcha. You know, the narrator is a multiple, mm-hmm. or at least of a multiple in some respect. So the the idea is there are these loads of these kind of hermaphrodite time pilots sort of going right. around, coming from the future um, for, you know, reasons at this point that even I'm, I'm not sure I'm qualified to, to comment on, but um, but there's a kind of original relationship between rigor and the person who is eventually rep. So they, you know, they have a they have a close relationship, which is a sexual relationship. It's uh, it's also some kind of intellectual relationship. Mm-hmm. Like rigor is rigor is something like a kind of you know uh, a kind of you know Wellesian you know, inventor, garage engineer, you know, gotcha. who's kind of able to, he produces the time machine in the sense that gets the pilot to the future and then gotcha. yeah. feeding back. But so, yeah, I mean, actually one of the other influences is, is Wells is the time machine, obviously. And I think particularly the idea, I think, I think at some point the time machine Wills actually implies that some of the kind of components of the time machine are not completely real. Interesting. You know, it has abstract elements as well as kind of physical elements, which I, I really love. You know, this is this kind of it's ontologically hybrid. And just something about the idea of this sort of tra- the, the, the whole idea also is everything that the time machine misses out, which is the traumatic experience of returning from the future. Right. Especially the far future, this kind of denuded future under a kind of dead dying star with this kind of a tentacle polyp thing sort of flopping <laughs> around on the beach. It's yeah. just so yeah, it's just amazing. But at the same time, within the constraints of Wells's novella, it's you know, there's almost no kind of 
there's no kind of there's no sort if you like psychoanalytical work after that event it's just compartmentalized gotcha. so I, I wanted i wanted there to be a kind of exchange between on the one hand rigor and the pilot and the future which you know which was just extremely embodied which you know which involves sex and pain and you know some kind of you know some kind of connect some kind of you know close emotional connection that, mm-hmm. that in a sense spread the narrator out between you know that this unstable present and this sort of ominous future that he's kind of probing and exploring but quite can't, can't quite delineate right fully it's it's interesting because that adds more depth to the notion of the cue that you mentioned yeah, just a little bit sure. ago and it um it reminded me of since cooper you were talking about what sorry messages of the afternoon or mm-hmm. what that I, I looked at that a little bit. It reminded me of uh, La Jete. Yeah. And and one of my favorite movies is Twelve Monkeys. I'm not sure. Yeah, if you, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I did, well, yeah. Is that is something of that type yeah, of yeah, absolutely. Um yeah. it's kind of I mean I, I deal with it more, I think, in um Ocean Terminus. There's a lot about La Jete okay. in there. Actually, you know, kind of segued with Terminator. Too as well. Gotcha. Um, okay. I think this whole this whole idea of a, a, a kind of of time being a kind of you know looping feedback process is mm-hmm. kind of really fun to play with. You know, almost like you know you're creating a noise circuit or something, electronic music. You know, just sort of or or a filter where you're basically playing a signal back over itself to kind of cancel some parts of the signal and uh, accentuate other parts of the signal. You know. And I, I mean, I know Nick lands into into that kind of imagery quite a lot. Um, you know, it's, it's just it's just fun to play with, especially if you're not too worried about kind of narrative consistency. You know, it doesn't um, tolerate that very well, but you know, it allows you to do all sorts of other fun stuff. This is another area where I think time quake has relevance because the time quake is basically the people within the story have to experience the exact the last year of their life over again they have no yeah, control yeah. over it at yeah, all you brought whatsoever. this up before yeah so they're sort of in this they have to yeah. <laughs> like automatons for sort of a year it's vonnegut's last novel and it's very it's dark it's very dark and yeah del- it sounds i mean i was gonna say that's kind of like one of my nightmares <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah just being stuck in a stuck in a kind of loop like that and not being able to do anything about it it's a truncated eternal return. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it it does sound like the nightmare version of it. There's obviously other characters we could talk about, like Behemoth or Oblivion, which is, I always kind of <laughs> smirked at, at that name. Before, I guess, going into more characters, which, as you say, can, can, are either substitutes or alters, whether it be of the narrator or, or each other. There was one word that, well, there were several, but there was one word in particular that you seem to have a predilection for is it's a graphane is that yeah yeah you want to say yeah, something about that yeah it's a kind of made up word although there are kind of allusions to the ancient greek right. writing and obviously the way writing kind of functions in in derrida's mm-hmm. text so but i i also kind of wanted to think of it as a kind of technology a kind of yes yeah, like a like a kind of nanotech, but 
but it's also, you know, in a sense, it's, you know, in a sense, I suppose in the sense, if you're a Derridian, all, all technology is writing anyway. It's not that writing is a technology. All technology, <laughs> in a sense, is structurally written, structurally spaced, segmented, iterable, whatever. Right. So, you know, it's just, again, it's just kind of a way of compressing all these kind of illusions into, into one image and then kind of just letting it do its work. You know, it does, I don't think it... You know, I mean, you know, as long as I could kind of convey convey something about what what the effectivity of, of graphene is, or what, what what it does, you know, I just decided that you know, I just let those semantic relations and illusions just hover around right. it. Is it also? Um, I guess that that makes more sense now since we've been talking about this, uh, the importance of recursivity. I mean, yeah. the, the, it embodies something something of that as well, correct? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I guess one way I, I think about the narrator is that he's he she is a figure with a womb, so he has it, but it's it's a technological womb in some way. It's mm-hmm. a graphene womb. It it's um, you know I'm I'm kind of probably in danger of misgendering my my own <laughs> hermaphrodite, but what the hell? She he is, is kind of repli- replicates herself at various points gotcha. uh, into, into different person phases. So she's literally giving birth to herself. She's kind of, I guess, past, parthenogenic. But it's but I wanted it that to be a technology, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, there's quite a lot of playful stuff around that to do with kind of bugs and insects flying out of it. Right. Um, the swarm intelligence. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's quite a lot of whimsical stuff that can be could be done with that. There's also a sense in which you know graphene, or it, it kind of relates to graphite. Yes, black. And I love this Im- the image of um, the black ships in current ninety threes. Uh, black ships ate the sky, which I wanted to incorporate. So it kind of allows a, a kind of tenuous connection there between the black ships that occasionally swarm through the book. And these other kind of, if you like, post-mortal technologies that are sort of ramifying and leveling and eating and transforming everything in the course of the book. Even on the the little paragraph that you read, a lot of times you call I the thing or it too. So there is a sense in which it, as you as you said, the I or the you are both playing with this genderless or fluid gender. I'm also having fun with with Wilfred Sellers on Cam. And I can't even remember the name of that article. I something the thing that thinks so I, the yeah, idea right. of, of the subject being kind of anonymous in a way. The I thing is also just a way of kind of defamiliarizing the subject and sort of dealing with it as a kind displacing, of displacing, right? Yeah, as something that may you know, as something that may not be kind of familiar or close to us, but may may indeed be a kind of thing which I guess relates also to the kind of currents of desire that kind of move through the book, which are kind of in one sense embodied, but in another sense in human desires. I may be speaking or making this too soon, but I thought, you know, the the sort of reproductive cycle or like artificial womb technology reminded me of uh, what the kind of Benny Thlylax do in, in, Dune, oh, in, yeah. in the Dune universe with the axolo- axolotl tanks. I might have yeah, lost the pronunciation, sort of- but... No, axolotl's right, I think. Yeah. In fact, I used to have a there used to be an axolotl in my in our biology lab when I was a kid. Nice. Know, yeah, used to kind of talk to it. But yeah, I guess I guess it's all 
in a sense, we're quite used to a lot of these kind of science fiction tropes now. So in some right. ways, it allows you to be pretty compressed in the way you deal with them. I guess if I'd been that kind of writer, I could have sort of developed a sort of, you know, a kind of cod scientific basis for a lot of this stuff or done some, you know, more serious world building than I did. But in a way I didn't want, you know, I, I was uncomfortable right. having the the text sit or the book situated in a particular, the, right. the action situated in a coherent world. Certainly. And I kind of, yeah, I kind of wanted a lot of these illusions just rather like with the references to other texts to, in a sense, be quite compressed and, you know, and work at that level, kind of partially interpreted, if you like, rather than fully interpreted to use a kind of um, sort of formal systems way of thinking. Well, we can keep talking about Dune if you you want. I know uh, that's been a kind of event with the success of the new remake. When I went and visited Cooper, I got to see for the first time Lynch's version from 1984. And wow, that I'm surprised you hadn't seen it. So that's that uh, asked me really. I weird. tried to start it, but my wife, you know, she just <laughs> doesn't like the campy stuff. And I try to keep yeah. her happy. I'm not trying to speak ill of her, but you know, it was an experience. It really was a just a since we're kind of been talking about it, it was a kind of surrealist um mm. experience, very much like your novel. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing, I mean, again, I, I remember seeing it when it, it came out, and I, I think a lot of people were quite nonplussed by it Mm -hmm. you know again it it just didn't do what you expect that sort of film to do I mean I I mean you know as as an adaptation it's obviously extremely problematic in in (laughs) you know in so many ways but it does you know just at the level of images it's just extraordinary and I think that the kind of disproportion you know I mean Lynch is great at sort of disproportionate brutality and and violence and it it does that so well it kind you know it's almost as if the violence is kind of in excess of the story's capacity to kind of incorporate it it just exists for itself Mm. you know rather like i mean like some moments in twin peaks are a bit like that as well you know it's like you know weirdly sort of disparate and separate from the rest of the narrative you know so lynch is an extraordinary image maker and that works fantastically at that level i mean i just thinking about the heart pumps mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. there's a heart what are they call the heart, heart um, plugs heart plugs you know so so baron harkin can literally kind of pluck these plugs out of his servants at any time watch and you know watch them bleed out you know for his delectation <laughs> yeah. um, i mean that's you know really grotesque but it, it I just love the way Lynch goes with that stuff I'm very mixed about that film because you know I think a lot of us were hoping for an adaptation of the novel which it summarily wasn't <laughs> yeah you know, I think Phil you know Villeneuve's film is obviously you know works far better as an adaptation but it doesn't yes. have this you know yeah. but it doesn't have that same craziness exactly no yeah which is you know what you you, you know you go to cinema for I guess Cooper, did you call the new adaptation like a, a men maximalist? Was it a minimalist maximalist? Or was that was that Nick who kind of said it that way? It might have been Nick, but yeah, just this notion of kind of maximalizing a minimalism. minimalism. I, yeah. I can't really yeah. say it very well, but mini max or maxim, yeah. maximum. I think in um, in decision theory, it's all about in, re, increasing the, the very lowest kind of position you can get in, in a series of outcomes you know so basically minimizing 
minimizing your losses. I mean, there is a kind of sort of, I mean, the, the way the film uses brutalism, I mean, this the Bill Nerves brain, mm-hmm. you know, the brutalist architecture is fascinating. I love the, I do love these slow moments, like the guy, you know, these, these kind of little tributaries from the main story, like the guy watering the, the date palms. Yeah, the, absolutely. The accounts meeting, you know, I mean, just the kind of quotidian stuff. I, I, I really love the way he inserted that. Into, I think it needed. Absolutely. You know, so you do get a sense of place and a, a sense of these institutions kind of grinding on. Yes. Um, this is how a galactic empire works. And a lot of it is kind of as dull as shit, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, the bureaucracy. Yeah. So I, I saw the Lynch version when I was, I think, six years old. It aired on television as yeah. the Alan Smithy cut, I believe, is what it's yeah. been referred to now because they added a bunch of secondary material and Lynch himself disavowed. He didn't want to be associated with this yeah. Alan Smithy version. That's the first version I saw at six years old, and it just blew my mind because there's nothing nothing comes to the aesthetic close right. to the aesthetic weirdness and just otherworldliness that Lynch pulled yeah. off that was so strange and bizarre. I've been obsessed with the Spacing Guild since then. One of my goals has been to look like the, uh, dress up like the Spacing Guild. And I finally, <laughs> yeah. I finally pulled that off this year for Halloween. But that was a long time sort of aesthetic goal is to, <laughs> to kind you, of resemble them. Did, did anyone notice that sort of there's a kind of queer resemblance between the Guild Navigator in that early scene and uh, the baby in the Razorhead? Right, yes, absolutely. I, I didn't this know that. Kind of, Dune is like the happy ending to a Razorhead. <laughs> the, the baby kind of flourishes and, you know, right. becomes a kind of galactic potentate and kind of sweet. The other word I wanted to ask you about, which you, you seem to singularize or make your own, was um, the word yellow yeah. and, and taking off the W. Is it, was there any choice behind that? Or There was, a, you know, well, I think once I'd made the choice, you know, you know, I applied it consistently. I think it was a way, absolutely, it was actually singularizing the word and actually making, obviously, yeah, it kind of passes for a, a color word, but. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to do other things as well. And maybe again, rather like graphene, indicate some kind of ambivalent technological agency. Interesting. So again, it's just a way of doing that in a really compressed way. I mean, I'm trying to think whether there are any kind of that there are any kind of um precursors to this use of yellow as a kind of threatening, mutagenic kind of substance and i'm sure there are and i'm just kind of i just can't remember that any of any examples at the moment and obviously there's the king in yellow that so there's this this kind of the this yellow new, bastard yeah. from sin city yeah yeah i don't yeah. think that was in my mind but i mean maybe maybe robert chambers the king in yellow maybe there's something i mean mustard gas it's also yellow. yeah I mean, so, biologically I mean, Jaundice is an indication of a kind of sickness yeah. too, so it has that connotation. In a sense, once I hit on it, it seemed too good to waste, you know, because I'm in a sense, you know, nothing's more useless in a way than colour words in literature, you know. <laughs> yeah. Because you can't, you can't see the colours, you know. You're, you're, so in a sense, they might as well, they might as well function purely as kind of as pure differences in a way, mm-hmm. and be allowed to do other things. It just kind of seemed fun to do as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was 
even cute in a book that's not particularly, you know, about, and, <laughs> but, it, you know, it, it seemed funny to me at the time, as well as kind of opening up, just kind of way of, as I said, of just kind of returning to certain kind of kinds of distributed agency, I guess, that were working in the book without having to thematize them in a very kind of literal way. One of my favorite quotes towards the end of the, the book, which seems to give a, a nice speculative deepening of many of the themes was, if I remember how it goes, it's, it's a very simple line. It's ontogeny always trumps ontology. Do you remember saying something like this? Yeah, I think I was discussing, I think this came out of a conversation I had with Ian Grant. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, around the time I was finishing the book, actually, and I was reading his book on, belatedly reading his book on Schelling. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I think there's also a reference to matricide in that passage as well. But it's in the context of a kind of weird sort of, probably one, one, one of the kind of most, well, I mean, there are lots of weird passages, but this is kind of about a sort of a kind of prehistoric sadomasochistic matriarchy and the kind of relationships between, you know, what passed for familial relationships within that, that, that setup. So in a sense, yeah, it's, it's also about the fact that these are kind of unstable kind mm -hmm. of subjects, but they have origins. They have a kind of, they have, their own little vectors, which are more important perhaps than any kind of state they assume along the way. Right. So there's, that, 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 there's that kind of, you know, broadly sort of process-oriented Deleuzean stuff at work there, I guess, as well. But yeah, I mean, it did remind me of Simon Dong, you know, the yeah, yeah. his whole his whole thesis is the fact that you can't think individuation starting from the individual and working yeah, back to it. And I, like, yeah. And I so, think I channel that as well, yeah. Yes. So in a sense, yeah, it, all individuality, individuation is always kind of under negotiation, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the both, both materially, but also in terms of the way the book tries to work, I guess. Exactly. I mean, just uh, like you've been calling them person phases, which I think is a, is a or something like that, right? The, this, yeah, these yeah. phases of personality or these phases of the narrator, these phases of the characters, like Which can thinking diverge, about it. You know, yes. I mean, uh, Ashley Parfit talks about diverging person phases. Okay. Phages would be good too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if people could fission and then re replicate their memories and their, their bodies rather than then all sorts of formal relations of identity would break down. We can no longer talk about just one future self you could have multiple versions right of which are different so the notion of personal identity you know you, you break transitivity the notion of personal identity essentially would break down so there's all this kind of i guess philosophical slime kind of <laughs> circulating <laughs> yeah you know in a more or less incohate form you even kind of said it earlier this this notion of a of an inclusive disjunction right mm. rather than any sort of exclusivity. I mean, we've been we've been doing a running series on anti-Oedipus, so of course that's one of the yeah. things that's kind of um, you know thinking about desiring production, thinking about the paralogisms of the unconscious, the yeah, yeah. you know the non-segregated connectivities, uh, you know the inclusive disjunction, you know all of this stuff. It definitely sort of deepened my reading of of your work. A lot of times we do bring. It could be recency bias, <laughs> you know, yeah. sometimes when we when we come to a new work. But I definitely remember that 
that line towards the end. And- yeah. I was talking with a friend about this and we were both sort of discussing, I guess we were, we were both sort of interested. I mean, she was interested in, in you know, why there are these kind of erotic elements within in, in the work. And she thought that, in a sense, the those are the moments, in a sense, that are also the most human, the, the yes. kind of most situated, the most sensual. At the same time, most of the most of the sex in the book is pretty dark. It's pretty violent. It usually involves some pain. It quite often involves death. Hence the title. And I kind of wanted that sort of sense of a death drive. I suppose. I mean, since everything in this book wants to die, <laughs> you know, and I think one of the reasons for that is that, you know, death is an object of desire. And obviously to some extent I'm, I'm kind of, vulgar, I'm probably vulgarizing Freud hugely here, but, you know, as an object of desire or fantasy, death is extremely odd because at least erotic desire or fantasy, because if you're dead, you can't feel anything. So in a sense, why? what is it to actually fantasize about dying or, or killing, you know, particularly dying? It's, uh, you know, if the object of one's desire is subtracted, if you like, from the desire and from the thematization of desire. I think that allows me to be at one time, at one moment, quite sensual in my description and at the same time completely indeterminate and open. And that, right. if you like, allows these moments to plug into the mesh, if you like, of, yes. you know, mutagenic influences that are running, I think, ripping rather than running through this, this kind of demon-haunted universe. It does make sense that the death drive takes on a totally different vector when plugged into the universe that you situated in with the, the time piloting, with the, uh, with the sort of ontogenesis being the death of one's ego, individuality, isn't necessarily the death of one's existence, so to speak. Yeah, so there's this character called, oh, no, I've actually forgotten what she's called. She's really, I've actually forgotten what, this is a extremely senior moment. I had a list of the female yeah, characters. Yeah, I, I haven't really read Anna, my book. Mary Pitt. This is the kind, she's the main political operator. It's not Map, is it? No, Map's really important. I really like Map. There is a character, nominally female, who is, if you like, the main political instigator and operator in the book. And so, you know, at some empirical level, she is a human woman at certain points, but doesn't remain so. And I guess, if you like, her political project is extremely kind of, you know, it's it's extremely denuded of any kind of human content. It is a kind of universalised death drive, I guess. So there's a kind of universalisation of an attempt to, if you like, effectuate the universalisation of the death drive as a kind of if you like, as a maxim of action. Right. Um, uh, so That's Baudrillard, right? <laughs> well, it probably yeah. is, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know. Um, Symbolic exchange. For some reason, I mean, I've, I've read a lot of this stuff, but I, I often find it easier to work from first principles. So, you know, like, I, I didn't really, the only time I ever really felt I, I got lack on was when I was writing about Ballard's crash for some reason, and then kind of basically finding my way through that text using Lacan's kind of matrices, if you like, as a way of figuring it out. But that has not persisted. I just can't 
<laughs> you know, it was very localized. But yeah, so so there, there is this kind of generalization of, of universalization of the death drive as a, as a kind of political project, which is once sort of erotic and, and genocidal at the same time. I, I, and that kind of, I mean, we were talking about post-human life, my first book, and that kind of connects to the, the aporia that post-human life kind of, yeah, the Kabbalist, right? This Kabbalist, right? Gotcha. Because uh, well, you know, one of the other the sort of uh, conceits in the book is there are these two kind of organisations, the cabal and the syndicate, that are kind of crossing and sort of in a state of mutual codependency and conflict. The problem with the kind of post-humanism I'm interested in is it's essentially subtractive. It's all about subtracting the object, namely the post-human, from your from any kind of substantive kind of ontological or ethical characterization. And I mean, hence the connections. I've kind of made along the way with Laruel and Badiou. So in a sense, yeah, there's a kind of relationship then between the kind of subtractive politics of the post-human, which is in a, a politics for nothing. It's a politics of kind of biomorphism for its own sake, simply because the position that you would need to adopt to actually adjudicate any kind of sort of change in your substrate is, mm-hmm. is only there after the change has been made. So the only kind of desire that makes sense is a perverse one. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I like this, the way... Within oh, this sorry. sort of cosmos, if you like. I like that you begin... In chapter one, there was a beautiful quote in Post-Human Life from... Trying to remember if I remember his name correctly, Della Mirand- Mirandola, the, the yeah, yeah. Italian Renaissance thinker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'd, I'd never seen it before, but this, but you tie it in to beyond the nano bio information and cognitive technologies. You you tie in this notion of a morphological freedom, right? A, a kind yeah. of this. I, mean, th- I found that so fascinating. And do you want to yeah, say? I mean, a little bit about that yeah i mean i think i think that sort of that um reference to mirandola had become quite widespread within the transhuman community okay i was writing books so it's, there's not much kind of originality there it's simply because he rather like sartre actually later argued you know that, that what dif- distinguishes the human from other animals is, is in a sense to have no fixed place in nature so in a sense that that place in nature is always negotiable and can be redefined by us you know so that's you know it's an ontological idea about what the human condition is as opposed right. to what human nature might be so if you buy into that then morph- yeah I, I, I guess morphological freedom can be one way in which that lack of essence is, is expressed or you know, just as Sartre's agent, in a sense, has no essence and is constantly sort of redefining itself. But that was a fairly trad move around the time I wrote it. But it is just a way of connecting with, you know, with some kind of with some kind of cultural history, but also with some of the other sort of transhumanist writings um, that, that that were, um, you know, burgeoning at the time. For me, it was it was kind of refreshing to to think about this notion of different forms of embodiment. And, and it does feel like sometimes, and I'm, I'm speaking mainly for myself, not for others, just yeah. that there can be a lack of imagination with these 
whether it be a brain in a vat or a soul downloaded into a yeah. computer, just, just the, just even contemplating morphological freedom. There is a kind of uh, yeah. a sublime where there is no kind of limit to the imagination. Once you start to give yourself yeah. the, those parameters. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's kind of one of the things I wanted to, 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 if you like, embody and kind of eroticize actually, mm -hmm. you know, because I don't think it makes, in a sense, it doesn't make much sense to me. I, I, otherwise, if you're thinking of it as a rationalist project of self-fashioning, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to work if you're talking about some kind of radical change in, in the human substrate, because, you know, the information you need to actually make an informed decision on whether to adopt that substrate or not is, won't be there until you've made it. It's, it, it, only, it only works as a, as a sort of gratuitous act. But that in itself only makes sense to me as in some sense as a, a kind of erotic kind of act. Or, right. Or, you know, it's kind of embedded in, in, in a sort of a sense of our own bodies as somehow not quite full or stable. You know, the right. sort of thing that you get in Bacon, Francis Bacon's paintings, of, you know, and, and I think most interesting erotic experiences anyway are, are about not feeling your body as you normally feel it about getting you know and about disrupting those kind of individuating markers so um, body without organs loosely right yeah yeah i mean body without organs is just one you know i mean i think literally you know i mean i, I kind of wrote a little blog about that i think it was it actually was related to this sort of lacanian idea of of a kind of habitual sort of diagram of one's own body that can then be disrupted with certain kinds of erotic practices, you know, so, right. you know, anal sex, if you're a, particularly if you're a man, you know, so suddenly being a penetrable body rather than being the one that penetrates and completely, right. you know, that kind of thing. So that I think somehow kind of basing the, the sort of experience of becoming post-human in some kind of, rhetoric of, of, of destabilized desiring bodies seemed right i guess and it makes sense that if we're going to think about the sort of infinite variations of substrate you know as you kind of lay out if mind and intelligence uh for post-humanism uh, speculatively is can sort of be adapted to any substrate it doesn't make sense or it seems naive to not consider the erotic aspect of yeah. those substrates. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that's going to, I think that's one area that's going to be really interesting in the next, you know, 50 years even. You know, I mean, a lot, I'm, I'm personally not that interested in sex bots. But, you know, a lot of the drive behind, behind new technologies seems to, you know, seems to be, you know, coming from the sex industry, from mm -hmm. Pornography, and that's where a lot of the markets will be, you know, play for virtual reality or um, various kinds of, you know, embodied interface. So, you know, it'll, I mean, some of that could actually take really tedious kind of, for want of a better word, you know, phallocentric forms, but it needn't obviously, it needn't be like that. I mean, right. um, like, like Bogner Conyol's written some great stuff about, you know, distributed, you know, using, um, sort of dildonics in distributed sort of spaces and you know so that, you know you could get be getting stimulation from sort of anywhere on the net from anyone at, at different times and you don't know what interesting idea of kind of the body efflorescing a way of the body efflorescing into the 
into cyberspace that's quite that's still situated it's not william gibson it's you know this is kind of technology that's actually quite that could be envisaged now quite quite easily but but yeah i mean i i think you know just if you just think about the way we invest in our technologies like our mobile phones the way we we worry at the things we hold them we kind of there is a kind of weird sensual dependency on them that's quite interesting so i i guess that that is going to be hugely important in the next as we go into the next 50 years I think perhaps in the context of the metaverse, that's sort of interesting. It's also interesting just the cyclical nature of it's kind of weird. I mean, I think we can all sort of commiserate on the matrix is sort of coming back. Dune is coming back. There's a weird, yeah, complexical cycle of positive, like, you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? It's a sort of feedback loop that uh, David was talking about in a sense earlier on that I just, I don't know, just kind of popped into my head. That's very interesting. And I think given this whole discussion of artificial intelligence, distributed subjectivity, metaverses, simulation, et cetera. I mean, these are things that we've been- Virtual reality on. stuff, right, yeah. yeah. I haven't read much about the proposals for the metaverse. I mean, like, I've seen a few images and they all look like, kind of like, like, like <laughs> sort of screenshots from kind of 80s <laughs> yes. video games, you know. Like, yes, right. Christ. I was thinking um, too about how, you know, in the- in the Star Trek universe, how, you know, Ooh. the next generation, you know, their innovation was the holodeck. Yes. And then it's interesting how later on, you know, once Deep Space Nine hits, that's when the sort of sexual undertones of that become, yeah. become more to the forefront in terms of the narrative. I think it's always, it lays dormant within the next generation, but then they kind of... right. And there's a kind of subgenre Star Trek episode, wasn't there? The kind of holodeck episode with something right, with, right. you know, go screw with the um I like the, the one where Moriarty, they simulate Moriarty and right. in order to sit in order for data to simulate a worthy opponent, he has to simulate an, an intelligence smarter than himself. And that right. produces you know, predictable mayhem and yeah, <laughs> but that was you know that you know, you, you kind of almost wish they'd run with that a bit more, you know. Right, yes, yeah, very true. I mean, you know, it reminds me of sort of writing about how science fiction movies and films particularly deal with the idea of transcending human intelligence, that it's actually very a very difficult theme to address. To visualize, right? <laughs> to visualize, to have any kind of interesting conflict or dramatic relationship because of the nature of the, you know, unless you're talking about something like Lovecraft's gods or something. Right. You know, so but but personifying a sort of AI as sort of Dr. Moriarty kind of makes sense in, in a way. It's kind of a nice way through that, that dilemma that, you, you, you know, you've got something that actually is going to think rings around you, but at the same time, you're, you're it has limitations. In, yeah. You know, yeah. And it always has to be limitation. It also has to, always has to be sandbox. Vulnerable, right? Yeah. Uh, it's interesting too, the way that they dispatch, because Moriarty does come back and he ends up taking over the, enterprise but what they do is right. they they reintegrate the simulation of moriarty into a whole simulation with so that he thinks that he's actually leaving but he's participating in the simulation it's yeah very strange that, i hope that picard will dig up that perhaps that would be great you know because it was one of those shows where you know a lot of it was kind of like fairly dull and plodding but then one you know every few every sort of five or six episodes you get something right. really some nugget like this that you could really sort of work with and speculate with now they did have as well this is a, 
actually, this is one of my favorite episodes. They had the character Barkley. He became super intelligent. He merged with the ship. I remember that one, yeah. We're talking about representing. That's why I came to my yeah. mind in terms of how to represent a super, you know, AI, super intelligence. So he's in this bizarre chair in the in the holodeck, actually. <laughs> and it has these lights that are sort of do, 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 do. And he's so integrated to the ship and so forth that they're afraid if they disconnect him, that it would kill him, etc. So it's this very interesting dilemma. That's some of the most fun and is the ethical dilemmas that, that get confronted yeah. in, in Star Trek. It's not just, you know, the, the action and the battles are, are downplayed and, and subordinated to, to these, these more existential intellectual problems, which is, that's just the, that's Roddenberry's kind of legacy, right? Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that, that they've channeled some of this stuff on the recent series Discovery as well as kind of, of AI you know, runaway AI themed interesting stuff in that. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, just from a science as a you know bit of science fiction world building, you know, the Federation's technology and resources are such that it ought to be kind of perpetually on the cusp of some kind of singularity event mm. all the time. I mean they don't need the Borg. They could actually have their own homegrown sort of singularity quite easily. So I can't remember whether there's any rationale for why that doesn't happen, whether there's some, something like the uh, veto on AI that you have in Dune or AI that, you know, or general AI as opposed to kind of stuff that makes you well, your, your, your ships fly or whatever. The first season of Picard is sort of yes. dealing with that, right? I've, now that I think about it. Can you say more about the the veto uh, of AI or general oh, well, AGI in Dune? In Dune, yeah. they had uh, Butlerian Jihad. In their historical world, they had a whole revolution or civil war, basically, over thinking machines. So they okay. were completely outlawed. Okay, gotcha. That's why of, because of the disastrous effects or yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, that's why you've got libraries full of lovely books in the um, Villeneuve version. And you've got think basic humans functioning as machines. It kind of makes sense of the feudalism because it says mm. all your all cognition reposes in human bodies. And therefore, to, to master the world cognitively, you have to master others and you have to kind of bind them and control them. It's almost like kind of like a you know, mark, you know, it's like like the sort of the historical materialist side of Dune that interesting works for me that it actually there's a lot of whimsical stuff about sort of feudal kind of galactic empires but this one actually makes sense within the kind of parameters of the world that Herbert's built I think and is the outlawing of the the AI is that does that exponentially increase the value of vice or is that just yeah. incidental? Yes. that's the whole yeah. that's the whole uh, linchpin of the economy is only the because of the lack of the thinking machines the guild navigators use the spice gotcha to, gotcha well, basically so they, they they basically use prescience to see okay they want to make yeah. sure that they put you in the right place so that you don't end up in a star or so forth or or a black hole right yeah exactly yeah. they finessed that nicely in the, in the Villeneuve version they did know, for example by showing the library um, i think there might be i don't know if there are references to the forbidding of thinking machines but it it'll probably come up yeah you could almost have inferred it you know that there are no computers right right yeah and um i still haven't managed to see it again but i mean like there's also there's there's a really uh, another uh, scene i like where they they discuss the accounts on on arrakis and there, there are no kind of 
there are no kind of fancy visual displays, you know, presumably they've they've had to kind of go through paper records to figure all this out. What what was the other drug? Uh, It gets shown in Lynch very clearly. What's what's the... uh... The water of life. Is that what it's called? Just the 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 yeah. with the ink stains and 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 that. Oh kind no of no! Thing? Oh, the juice of safu. Okay, safu juice. That's its own kind of cognitive enhancer. This this gets back to why I was asking about snuff. You know, as as a kind of intellectual stimulant <laughs> uh, too. That's very right? interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, hmm. is the is the juice of safu just in the Lynch? Or I can't remember. Is it in in Frank? Is it in the book? I'll have to look up. <laughs> yeah, well, it's fine. I mean, honestly. I was just kind of thinking about since we're we're talking about the outlawing of AI and Spice has this kind of yeah. not just if I understand it correctly, it's not just about space travel, but it also has what cognitive stimulate stimulating effects yeah. and yeah. and obviously morphological changes, right? Because we see what happens to when you're constantly high on it, right? The, at least, or is that again Lynch's uh, <laughs> that really? I think the waters of life are, are produced by the worms. Right. I yes. don't know whether, whether it's what you get when you kill a worm or or whether it's, some, it's, it's something to do with a particular phase of the worm's yeah. kind of life cycle. Gotcha. I think they drown, really... they drown a worm, I think a young worm in, in water, and it's the bile from the worm or something like that. And yeah, they that drink that. Sense. And it's, it's a poisonous beverage, but the sort of... I guess the priestess of the Fremen or the Bene Gesserit or they transmute the poison into a consumable beverage that Ah. I think is shared amongst the whole tribe or teach or what have you. Yeah. And that's also how um, Jessica's daughter becomes kind of sapient at birth. Uh, okay. uh, that's done really well in the Lynch film, actually. Alia, she's mm-hmm. oh, she's so that. amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love um, that shot of her at the end where she's got the Chris knife and she's got her whole. Yeah, little... she just sort of. <laughs> yeah, I might have to pull that grass, out. You know, all over the shot. Yeah, no, I, I'd be looking forward to seeing how they they, they handle that in, in, in the sequel. But I think that's the other thing that I liked about the Villeneuve version um, that doesn't really come over in the Lynch is is actually that, you know, that Paul's not really a hero figure. You know, he's actually a pretty, I mean, he's he's a tragic figure. I mean, I think that's certainly what becomes more and more apparent as you as you read through the book. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's so cool. Because she kills, well, I don't know if I should speak. The real reason why small children should not be allowed. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's pretty funny. I've learned so much about the, the Dune universe from, from Cooper. It was, it was one of my father's favorite sci-fi, you know, um, he was big into Asimov, Herbert, you know. Um, and I, I've been watching the Foundation series that they're doing on Apple TV. It's been pretty good. Um, I started it. I've seen the first two episodes. For various reasons, I decided not to... Um, just not to subscribe because there were technical issues because I don't have many Apple devices. I couldn't use my Chromecast or I had to connect to oh, my laptop. Yeah. Just, I was a bit iffy. I think I think I saw the third episode, maybe in the third episode, I was not sure whether I'll probably just get the DVD yeah. set when it comes out. Or or touring it, you know. I mean, where, yeah. you know, or amongst friends, you know. But yeah, I guess I guess that the thing about just Wondering, as someone who enjoys psychedelics, but on a daily basis, coffee, nicotine, yeah. caffeine, you know, these kind of things, I, I do 
and alcohol. I do, I do think about these, yeah. these enhancers, so to speak, this notion that the brain and it's wiring, it's, it's, you know, if, if, if we weren't meant to sort of alter our consciousness, our sober brain, we wouldn't have these abilities yeah. to sort of mess with our receptors. Right. You know, so yeah, I, I think about well, this in terms of your post-human life and, and the snuff yeah. memories and, and things. My experience is fairly limited. I mean, I did, I did take one ill-advised LSD trip while staying <laughs> with some people I barely knew in Cambridge. Uh, and things started going wrong as soon as we, as soon as we came to play croquet in a oh God. Sort of garden <laughs> near King's College. You can just sort of imagine the idyllic summer's day and you know the acid sort of. <laughs> yeah but unfortunately croquet is a game sort of designed to induce paranoia no yeah, <laughs> yeah. and you know because it's, it's it's all about strategizing basically right. you know isolating the, the runt you know so yeah that that didn't really help but it uh, was yeah. it was i mean you know so i i got really paranoid and, and but it, it was interesting to be on the inside of a mind that was literally coming apart, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, you know, certain kind of functions like language and the ability to sort of just apply linguistic categories or, or think in terms of relations became attenuated. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, I was sort of thrown over this kind of raw sensory kind of torrent you know onslaught right so you know it was a completely different mode of consciousness there's no doubt about it and yeah it makes sense if you're because because lsd i think replicates some of the the functions of neurotransmitters so it Mm -hmm. probably increases your connectivity you're making associations probably between parts of the mind that would not normally make them you know, some of it's extremely kind of pleasurable. Some of it's kind of extremely scary. But yeah. you know, the, but overall, there was a you know a feeling of a mind kind of coming to bit. You know, like the faculties that were normally kind of cons- you know working together to create some sort of consensual, stable experience were no longer kind of working in that way anymore. Right. And that was scary as fuck, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. The, the faculties are, are producing that violence that causes each one to produce something new, as Deleuze yeah. kind of talks about, the, the crowned anarchy, the... Yeah, um, absolutely. You know. um, <laughs> it's probably worth doing at least once. I mean, you know, I mean, if you enjoy it, I mean, fine. I didn't particularly enjoy it. I just found it retrospectively interesting. Yeah. The setting does matter and the people you do it with and yeah. and your state of mind. I am glad that at least in America now they are with like uh, psilocybin mushrooms, they are starting to lift some of the restrictions they've had for yeah. decades about the research. And some of the research coming out is like, hey, you know, psilocybin mushrooms can help with depression and these other things that we've actually known for thousands of years. Yeah. But science is now say is now yeah you know doing experiments to try to confirm these things so yeah i mean i know there's there's some research that i noticed from one of the people i follow on twitter who's a psychologist working on consciousness who's written on on um, hallucinogenics and he seems to think that consciousness is is literally a brain process it's not something computational it's not right it's not you can't you know it's not like a, a functional functionalist sort of Turing machine or mm-hmm. diagram 
and I think he uses uses work on on hallucinogens to to kind of uh, motivate that. And that makes sense to me. I mean, when you when you experience that stuff, you are you know you, your experience is something that on another level of description is probably some kind of you know very complex physiochemical synaptic process mm-hmm. modulated by by you know really complex chemistry. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. The reason why I was thinking about it at all was you know one of the it's a loose general term, but this notion of ego death. And it, it reminded yeah. me reading stuff, memories that it's not simply a surreal experience. There is elements of, of a kind of psychedelic effect yeah. and affect in, in the work that perhaps is, is related, not just to the subject matter, but to the, to the surface effect of language that, which is where yeah. we kind of started our conversation. I wonder if you want to say maybe a little bit more about the surface effect that you whether consciously or not, you know, tried to uh, to bring out yeah. in, in this. I mean, I wanted to write something, you know, something that was at least like science fiction, like mm-hmm. like a sort of sci-fi horror novel. But I always kind of feel satis- dissatisfied with the the kind of rather no, not so, dissatisfied is the wrong word because I actually, as I said earlier when we were chatting, I enjoy realism, I enjoy kind of literary naturalism. Has got no, but but I think in science fiction it's particularly problematic because, in a sense, how do you describe about a, a future that's sort of radically different in which you know subjectivity and the very kind of perspectives work in the fiction are going to be radically altered without, in some sense, formally kind of. Or, you know, altering the way you write and the position from which you write. So I, I had some idea that, among other things, that I wanted to write something which which would dislocate a lot of the kind of procedures by which we identify and track or situate a character, even though there are characters. Um, death of the author type stuff. Yeah, death of the author, but you, you know, in a sense, but not deeper. as critical. But as, I don't know about deeper, but at least it's not as a, as a, as a kind of writerly rather than as a readerly kind mm-hmm. of practice. You know, as as, as as a way of, and I mean, and just aesthetically, I'm I'm you know, I like cubism. I like I like fragments. You know, so I wanted to use that aesthetic, but the two kind of marry. I think. I guess my model there probably was. You know, reading William Burroughs and just this, this, this kind of sent this almost sensory effect of reading his prose. You know, like, right? You know, like scintillations of color and image dancing on the page as you read it, almost. You know, almost like you were taking some kind of intravenous drug. And it's the sonority the- too. I mean, even in the, in the cold open, the uh, I don't know if you still have it, Coop. The rhyming of inchoate with what's the word sorry sorry i i i'm springing that on you but no, the, okay. there, there was some there was some internal rhyme yeah what the the brachiating horn sensate greedy and inchoate so like this was yeah. this was partly why I, I i thought of hopkins i know you don't take it to that extreme because that would perhaps be its own experiment and perhaps uh you know but you do sense just to describe some of the elements that go into the the effect that you bring out, not only the internal rhymes, alliterations, assonance, but sometimes throwing in, whether it be technical words or uncommon words that that kind of dislocate the reader's sense of, 
I don't know, the reality or every everydayness, yeah. if you will, right? Yeah. So, I mean, hyperplasticity is a term I use in some of my kind of straight philosophical articles. It's, it's just the idea of a, a system that can kind of modify itself to an arbitrary degree. Mm-hmm. And I kind of use that to question, for example, whether certain kinds of models of subjectivity can kind of travel well to into the future. The argument being that a kind of broadly kind of Kantian or even Hegelian notion of subjectivity as kind of discursive product as discursively produced only works as long as there's a kind of sufficiently stable substrate. Once it becomes in, almost infinitely modifiable, then there's not only no need for it, but it has no role to play in, if you like, in the self, the self, uh, the auto-representation of this system and some other system, some other mode of representation, you know, without eyes, without intentions or beliefs or desires would then have to be produced. Obviously that, you know, but um, I was, I, I guess I was hoping that the term would, you know, just the idea of extreme plasticity and morphology and sort of unstable morphology would mm-hmm. would be enough there. I, I wouldn't have, you know, if somebody wanted to look it up, then then there's a she's some uh, some uh, electronic musician um, in in Seattle. Actually, wrote a piece called Hyperplastic Entity at some out on Bandcamp in response to this idea. R M Francis, yeah, you can get you can get the track and download it for your. Um, Delectation on uh, <laughs> hyperplastic entity, but yeah. So I mean, a lot of this, you know, if you've done any of this kind of writing, a lot of it's kind of improvisational. You mm-hmm. experiment with things. You try to see what what's going to work. You you just hope that, in some sense, the balance of the sentence and the the rhythm of it flows enough to be readable. You know, so that so a lot of what you describe is, is was kind of happening unconsciously, I guess. This is part of the the kind of, po- for lack of a better word, the poetic nature of, of reading it. You know, as I mentioned, you know, some of the elements that go into it, the musicality, as you mentioned. I also wanted to, we talked a little bit about this when we talked about the citations, but there are moments where the narrative or the surface effects also slip into, or you slip in sort of metaphysical speculative reflections or or thoughts and you kind of you sneak them in and they catch us by surprise and then that adds a, another layer or another kind of line of flight of thinking yeah and, and i mean i know the term theory fiction is thrown around but it is an interesting way to to sort of um elicit these other effects of thinking when you're experiencing the uh your, your work yeah i guess i guess it's almost like treating theoretical ideas i don't know like for example some of bad news reflections on um, set theory and ontology mm-hmm. um, the idea of there being in a sense no consistent totality which he, he gets from tank Cantle, uh which i think comes up at one point you know so there can't be a consistent to- there can be nothing like a world because you can always apply the um you can always in a sense get you can always derive a larger sort of structure a larger set from any given set right you know as we we know yeah and I, I think i was reading through being an event at the time i mean i was kind of familiar with some of these ideas and you know i i i also find some of um bad news writing particularly beautiful so I, yeah I, I think um i can't remember whether i actually cite him verbatim but um you did you did cite him once in here yeah yeah about um, fidelity i think 
yeah I, in any case i i wanted to sort of use that not i mean not so much to to do theory as to kind of use theory to kind of generate this in the service of the kind of crazy sort of theology or, that i was sort of working with at, at, at a certain point mm-hmm. um, so it's almost kind of like using philosophy as if it wasn't philosophy but something like something like science fiction you know i love that different sort of function that's kind of how in the beginning of difference of repetition uh in the preface where deleuze says like a book of philosophy should be half science fiction half detective yeah. novel yeah and i suppose it's, it's it's one way of interpreting you know philosophy as conceptual creation yes you know it's concept you know as the production of concepts you know i'm not a deleuze and i'm not really you know i, I find it I find it hard to subscribe to any you know particular yes. school, but I mean, there's a lot about you know Deleuze that fascinates me and I, I admire, and uh, you know certainly that that you know the, uh, the spirit of that kind of open, exploratory, creative abuse, if you like, of <laughs> concepts was something I really wanted to to do. It just excited me, you know. Just I guess if you read enough philosophy, you have all this material rather like life experiences that you might use in a short story or something, you know, but this, this is a bit like that. It's like stuff that's there waiting to be repurposed. I mentioned to you in, in the direct message that some of the erotic elements of your text, which in many cases are somewhat understated if for a book called Snuff Memories, you know, that yeah. you could have gone way over the top with it and be heavy handed. But I meant it as a compliment when I said that some of the descriptions reminded me of the opening passage from Libidinal Economy. I'm not sure yeah, if you're yeah. familiar with I don't that. know. I mean, it's again, it's like, to be honest, it's on my shelf of shame. It's just one of those <laughs> texts. I, I mean, I, I've read, I've read some of it, like bits of it, but I, I think um, it, it's probably something I should be reading. You know, I'm, just so I've read parts of anti Oedipus, you know, so I'm I'm extremely selective. I'm no, no, I, I mean, uh, but I'm, yeah, I, I'm. But actually, <laughs> I do, I've read a lot of, you know, I've read quite a lot of Miotard. I mean, it's actually, it's one of the few, uh, one of the few French thinkers that I I really I don't have great facility in the language, but I really enjoyed reading him in French. Prose is just beautiful. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, that's an aside, really, but. I think certainly I was quite self-consciously tapping into that as well as in a sense when I was, you know, when I was writing erotic or, you know, I was trying to write pornography. I was trying to write something that would, you know, that would excite me, you know, hopefully not heavy handed. No, I don't, you know, I think. Not at all. You know, I think it can be, you know, that, well, you know, I wouldn't want to do that, you know. I think partly because I think writing uh, eroticism requires a certain respect for, for for the other, and I think that involves a respect for the reader. You know, you don't right. kind of rub their nose in stuff; you allow them to approach it. You know, even if you're writing around about you know really dark material. You know, I mean, especially then you, you you know you need to give space for the reader to sort of take up their own position, use their imagination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Less right. is more. I think so. <laughs> Yeah. Going back to something you said a moment ago, because you do have a section, I believe, called negative theology. And there there were times when you use some words that are explicitly theological, but there are other times when you use words that have multiple meanings, some of which are theological. Do you want to yeah, say? I'm, yeah, I'm just going to find it because um, 
Also, I don't know how serious I was being when I, I probably <laughs> needed to call this section something. If I remember correctly, I thought there was one title. Yeah. That... The, okay. So, so there is a, there's a, there's a lot Page of. Page 12. Yeah. 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 I found it. So there's a lot of reference to the mesh as a kind of distributed kind of structure, mutagenic structure, mm-hmm. which. I think we've discussed. There's a reference to to Hastur. Obviously, Hastur is one of the great old ones in H.P. Lovecraft, who I always okay. think is un- underrepresented in the corpus. So I I, I wanted to in- include it in, uh, although uh, you know he's not. Ex- this is not exactly a Lovecraftian universe. There's also a reference to Swans's the Swans song, uh, a, a small sacrifice. Oh Jesus, oh Jesus, you're my only girl. There is an idea which, you know, in a sense represents Jesus as this kind of almost dom-like figure, you know, absolutely terrifying kind of elemental sort of figure who, in a sense, exists to mortify the, the subject and not much else. In the fires of hell or the fires of his desire or, or whatever. I mean, it's a really, really powerful piece of work. That's kind of one of the the ideas of the of Godhead, I guess I was trying to channel, the idea of God as being absolutely terrifying and not necessarily, I mean, concerned with us, but not necessarily concerned with us in the way that we might expect. Not like a personal much, God. No, as much concerned with our pain as anything else. Uh, like Schreber. Kind, yeah, yes. I mean, there's a kind of, one of the ideas I was toying with that if God is absolutely transcendent, or if you had a kind of, if you think of God as, as absolutely transcendent, then perhaps, you know, rituals involving pain and suffering are, in, in a sense, the only way to kind of invoke something like that. You know, the, in a sense, the only way to sort of bring around about Judgment Day, if you like, or the apocalypse or the, the end times is, is by, a bit like the acceleration, is by ex- exacerbating... <laughs> suffering exacerbating except consider this not you know on at on a cosmic scale yeah you know it's very reminiscent of from hell the uh graphic novel by alan yeah Moore. i mean it's also um and just there's another sci-fi series it's the one involving this kind of weird creature called a shrike hmm. that's sort of that's all sort of thorns and damn i've forgotten the um, i've forgotten the series yeah, but I think this idea of kind of redemption through pain, but sort of actually causing pain on a universal scale, literally torturing right. the sub, you know, torturing matter at the sort of sub level, you know, kind of really makes sense to me at some deranged level, you know. Right. That, so, so beyond so the, idea, yeah. the idea of the rose, the rose is in a sense that one, a, a sort of mystical entity, but also a kind of collegiate. Mm. force an ent- uh, uh, entity that's sort of dedicated to hastening transcendence in some way but it's not anything you know it's not anything you'd ever want to encounter <laughs> <laughs> yeah better left to the imagination yeah i uh, mean i mean in a sense it's kind of the opposite of lovecraft because in lovecraft the, the gods the great old ones are indifferent to human suffering mm-hmm. they just cause it as a sort of byproduct of their kind of life process but the, the rose is absolutely interested in in causing as much suffering and in a sense delectating upon that suffering in right. order to 
realize this greater end. Well, as, as Coop said, that's very much like Schreber's God, right? In, in yeah, his delirium. Uh, yeah, so that, that's that's obviously one of the case, that's one of the case histories I haven't read, so I need to go back. Well, his, I mean, that's his main loads of material there. His his main thesis or his main ideation feeling really is that he serves the purpose of permanently every moment perpetually giving infinite enjoyment or as much enjoyment from his body as as he can to this to this god that is that is uh miraculating his his organs as they fall apart that is penetrating him with with sunbeams you know it's it's just this notion that his suffering equals god's in, enjoyment is yeah. that kind of how you you took away I from think the that's something like that yeah yeah um, well, I, I suppose that would you could sort of i think you as a matrix you could kind of superimpose that quite easily on a lot on a lot of what's the uh kind of sadomasochistic imagery and snuff memories the interesting part is that schraber's god doesn't understand the living he only understands the dead (laughs) wow yes which Um, is almost uh, it's a sort of inversion of the lovecraftian deity i think sort of i don't know yeah i I mean i think yeah uh, yeah i mean i find the sort of lovecraftian cosmology almost comforting in a way you know because as long as you've got a a rock to hide under you know you can just about carry on but um, (laughs) yeah i think the idea of a god that's or a force that's absolutely you know you know even the idea of a god that's sort of interested in your welfare at some fundamental level is just so creepy (laughs) anyway you know they might as well be interested in causing you torment as you know it's, it's equally creepy whether they're causing you torment or causing you it's still like having a still like being abused by a, a, a parent or another, mm. something I, I don't know it brings back the what descartes and um the evil demon and god yeah. god is not a deceiver that kind of thing except instead of pain and suffering it's it's certainty and doubt Sorry, yeah. Cooper, are you going to say something? I oh, I was going to say something about capitalism being God and siphoning off desire from the desiring production of Schraber, but that falls into a kind of metaphor for desiring production and, and capitalism as this sort of parasitic relationship. It's like the torture, the pain and suffering is only to produce the desire to fulfill the, the deities, whatever. And the command, whatever the it has in mind, yeah, yeah, that would be yeah. an interesting way of kind of reading some passages. I mean, I know, um, in uh, Amanda Beach gave a really great commentary, um, in the, the reading group where she was talking about the kind of you know, the, the kind of residual elements of kind of capitalist modernity in, in snuff memories, like you know, the customs house, mm-hmm. in the sense that this, this kind of shifting kind of wasteland of partial bodies and constantly you know mutating cells kind of make sense as a as a sort of might make sense as a sort of commentary on the way we're, we're kind of constantly destabilized disenfranchised just dis, you know constantly expropriated by structures over which we have no control um, so you know it certainly permits that reading it wasn't it wasn't necessarily one that, that, that i intended at the time but i've got a lot of time for it <laughs> It's that injunction to uh, to enjoy, right? That we've yeah we've learned to associate with Lacan and Zizek. Well, we are at about two hours. Was there anything else we wanted to hit on? I mean, I feel like we've covered 
So no, much. I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm being really illuminating, actually. You know, like I say, I mean, a lot of the process of producing something like is kind of instinctual. It's mm-hmm. a bit like a bit like some creature producing a shell, or, or, or I almost venture to say a pearl, but that's somewhat presumptuous. <laughs> uh, but you know, the, you know, so it's it's really interesting to sort of stand back a bit and discuss it. And thank you also for kind of focusing so it's such fine grain, which I haven't really done so much, but I really enjoy that kind of close reading. So thank you. That's putting that's that, just a, putting that sort of effort in. You know, it's not. Yeah, it's, I, not, it's not easy. You know, Cooper and I we both have uh, an English literature sure. training background, so that's part of just an old habit. You know, creeping back up. Yeah. You know, getting sometimes getting <laughs> close reading, as they say. Yeah, which which can sometimes cause one to lose sight of the whole. Right, you focus on the trees rather than the forest. Yeah. I like to try to zoom in and zoom out. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and part of that was I would zoom in and then you'd hit me with the, a philosophical metaphysical reflection and I'd, whoa, and I had kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah. it would cause me to kind of cogitate for a moment and try mm-hmm. to, to make the connections with the world you were building yeah. and then zoom kind of slowly zoom back in. It is almost like a, like yeah. a kind of cinematic metaphor i suppose the only thing we haven't really discussed and it's really you know maybe an afterword that i guess if i was doing this interview i might have asked me why (laughs) why i kind of moved into writing fiction or theory fiction Mm. rather than say writing straight philosophy so i think so answering my own questions i'm interviewing myself (laughs) but this is i love it uh, like that's the whole recursivity of it. Uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because I'm kind of trying to figure this out as well. I'm trying to figure out, in a sense, what I want to do, what I want to write. If you were looking for a kind of philosophical rationale, it's it's to do with what we discussed earlier, the problem of, in a sense, doing post-humanism as philosophy, given that post-humanism is, at least I argue, a subtractive operation. It's not about defining an ethics or a body or a particular kind of way of being, but in a sense, being exposed to a sort of indeterminacy in possible ways of being that could arrive. You know, there's no way of predetermining that, I would argue. The only way of, in a sense, understanding what you're going to get yourself into is by getting yourself into it. And that seems to lend itself to various kinds of production rather than reflection so that's why I'm, I'm kind of dividing my time more between writing straight philosophy and uh, writing fiction and, you know apart from the fact that just kind of fast you know I find writing fiction extremely hard because I'm you know trained to write essays I guess and but at the same time I just find I just find the risk and the the rabbit holes it can take you down fascinating so yeah yeah did it start out just for fun did it start with the desire to write the book did it reach a critical threshold at some point you thought i think there were critical thresholds but i wouldn't say it was ever fun i had moments you know some days i mean at the moment i'm I'm sort of trying to work on a collection of short kind of short stories of broadly erotic horror and some days i quite enjoy it you know i mean i Actually, you know, it's not as hard as it used to be, but I still find writing fiction really hard. I'm constantly revising and, you know, it's a slog. 
you know, more so even than writing kind of academic prose. And it's partly because I, I am very sort of fixated on surface. So I tend to kind of worry about sentence, you know, sentences, sentence structure, just the feel, the balance. So I'm constantly going out, you know, I'm constantly trying to get that that surface right as well as hopefully write something that's kind of engaging. So those considerations aren't necessarily at the forefront when you when you write your academic or philosophical stuff or or, or is it do you, do you also um, think about not that so but... much i mean i'm pretty kind of i mean i know when i wrote you know a lot of the philosophy i write i mean i know when i wrote post-human life i mean all i knew is i wanted it to be about as clear you know about as comprehensible as something on that topic could be without kind of over-interpreting certain crucial sort of concepts but you know as far as it could be clear I wanted it to be clear and accessible you know say usable for a third year undergraduate or a, you know so that certain model of a you know a general you know and I wanted it to be open to readers coming from different disciplines so and mostly when I do I mean the philosophy I enjoy doing is often kind of fairly in that vein it's not that poetic it's just kind of taking an idea an argument and running with it you know almost like like doing analytic philosophy sometimes there were probably bits where I was trying to achieve a certain kind of feel but mostly it was kind of fairly had a fairly functional relationship to language as you kind of said it, it goes it goes against your your training and your maybe your first instincts, right? Which yeah, is to yeah. clarify and to yeah. exposit. And those are the things that you have, that's the tendency you have to fight against, right? When yeah, you're... at the same time. And there's, you know, there's, you know, we're talking about the perverse. The only philosophy I seem to be interested in is that the kind of philosophy that's problematizing itself, problematizing its very kind of nature and its concepts. I think you can do that sometimes in, in quite a sort of, using quite pedestrian prose, you know, and so, sometimes it works best if you do that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's definitely that imp of the perverse operating in the first book, you know, even obviously it's much more evident in Snuff Memories. I knew I wanted to get away from a kind of overly kind of moralistic tone in particularly talking about the post-human and bioethics. I wanted to emphasise ontology and epistemology, but I wanted to kind of push the problems as far as they could be pushed. And there's something crazy about that, the desire to do that. I don't know why anyone would want to do that, but that's kind of the philosophy that I, I want to do. I don't don't want to do trolley problems, thank you. <laughs> I, don't, I can't, I wouldn't even know how to write about trolley problems. <laughs> to a certain degree, so much of the literature is taking the the moral ethical concern whether yeah. it be optimistic and utopian or as befits our situations recently at least since you know our generation it, it, it's, yeah. it's increasingly dystopian whether it be on the sci-fi side or on the the philosophy yeah. side it, it's been done to death so when you state up front in post-human life that's not going to be my concern i think that's a bit of fresh air Obviously, there is ethical reflection there, but I want, wanted the ethics to be driven by the epistemology and the ontology. I didn't, you know. Right. I mean, also, there's a good philosophical reason. That obviously, you know, you're writing about, you know, if you're writing about post-humans, you're writing about things or beings that don't exist. So that involves a certain exercise in self-limitation anyway, mm-hmm. or should, you know, which I don't think a lot of bioethicists were observing at the time. I mean, maybe that's changed, but 
apart from the intrinsic interest of trying to do that, you know, trying to actually make it work yeah. as philosophy. I'm trying to remember the quote, Coop, you might remember this, and David, you, you as well, uh, mm-hmm. in Jurassic Park, Jeff Goldblum's character says, like, the scientists kept asking whether they could, you know, make the dinosaurs, not yeah. not whether they should. That's the kind of quote that bounces around in my head when, when I was reading uh, Yeah, it's interesting, your work. I think. I kind of always warm to the figure of the mad scientist. I love the, the best bit in Avengers Age of Ultron is, I think it's where Tony Stark says, mm-hmm. oh, we're all mad scientists here, you've got to own it, which was authentically wonderful, you know, I mean, for comment on the rest of the film. But I'm, yeah, I, 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 it makes sense in terms of that, that subject matter as well, you know. If the only way you can deal with the post-human is to spawn it in some... Something. And the Frankenstein, the Matt, the Doctor yeah, Frankenstein way, just yeah. cheerfully engage with that that kind of crazy auto destructive trajectory. I think you know, and so much of the tension in the novel is his belated efforts to disown his creation. Right, in a certain sense, you got to own it after you spawn it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's also why I think Coop and I are drawn to a thinker who's never really had a a home to call his own, like Watery a kind of mad scientist you know yeah. if, if Deleuze has it has a you could say a school or a following we could even say a church to in some areas and he's patiently elaborating concepts Guattari is just you know mixing chemicals and and crazy signs and asignifying you know semiotic elements and 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 just a kind of a wild creation in, in a way so that so that the two of them collaborating kind of makes sense in a certain way yeah, right yeah. they can each bring different elements right um, I certainly get that from reading i mean i i haven't read that much of, i haven't read any of guattari's own work but i certainly get that from reading a thousand plateaus yes you know, just like this exuberant sort of experiment at every point just throwing stuff in it's kind of so it's so sort of alien to what we've come to understand as you know i like mainstream philosophy like mm-hmm. you know and why shouldn't philosophical education involve some components a bit like just, you know, what you learn in art school, just learning to find a sort of metier for actually just creating and pushing stuff out there and, and speculating and maybe in different media in film or, or music. Right. And I mean, it's, just raises all sorts of interesting pedagogical issues in my mind about, you know, what we're, what we're even doing when we're teaching philosophy, let alone doing it. I've had an idea to try to adapt either libidinal economy or anti-Oedipus to, to video somehow. <laughs> think about this. And especially it's great that you brought up that we encountered meshes of the afternoon because it really like that's the sort of aesthetic yeah. that I think you would have to have to go mm. with. I think you could pare it down, actually. So one of the things I love about especially the afternoon is it's incredibly compressed and actually uses a fairly small number of recurrent elements. And I guess if you wanted to, if you wanted to show a desiring, if you wanted to, you know, video kind of, if you were to implement a, di- a desiring machine in video, that would, you know, be something like that. Something like, I think they comment on um, Beckett, not, um, is it Malloy? Yes. Where he's counting stones on yes. each, you know, as a, as a sort of, you know, this kind of self-replicating system. Yeah, yeah, it's like surprising it. when they call that a desiring machine, right? Shuffling the stones into yeah. different pockets, and and in the English edition, at least the penguin, they have the 
I forget the artist, but it's the it's the big boy and, and he's got his little machines behind him. And when we talked to Leon Brenner, he talked about a famous case. Was it in Bettelheim that he quotes the autistic child who the machine Joey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he he's like a little he becomes an electrician as an adult, but in order to kind of regulate his organs, his bowels and such, he kind of taps into these electrical machines. It was, it was he, very fascinating to read about yeah, he that. He had all these sorts of sort of partial machines or machines he would detach to his partial objects. So one one function served to drink or eat, urinate, oh, you know, et cetera. Fascinating stuff. Oh, if you could send me a link about that, I'd be really... <laughs> yeah. Um, it just sounds so bizarre, but... I believe, if I remember correctly, I can... I so can it's, in, it's Bruno Battle. It's in the Bruno I believe Bettel, it's in the it's Empty it. Fortress. I think that's okay. what it's called. I'll, I'll, I'll but he, but he, might, he might have... I bet this would be on his Wikipedia page. He might have a shorter article about... Yeah, yeah. I believe the boy's name is Joey. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, it yeah. is a fascinating... I don't know if it's like a case history in any big sense but at least in a minor mm. sense he's this example that we're talking about is um just to bring up schraber again there was a there's a kitler essay i'm not sure if you're familiar with I forget his first name kitler he's a thinker on technology and yeah. these other things he's someone that i'd like to read about more i read some of his work in grad school and i just haven't come back to it so um, joey a mechanical boy is that the name of the oh right essay? okay that's, that's easy to um yeah, it's easy to follow up. Thanks. David, I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate yeah. you you coming back and talking with us. And I appreciate your work. I know that we would like to have you back in the future sometime in the new year. Do you want to say before you go, just maybe you said you're, you're working on a collection of short stories. So. I'm working on a collection of short stories. Some of them have been, some of them being published in various kind okay. of outlets already. Some... Some not. Most of them, yeah, I, I guess broadly in the area of erotic horror, concept horror, mainly because mm-hmm. when I write horror, there's usually some sort of perverse erotic element in there. It's usually what kind of motivates me to write at all, if I'm honest. And I'm right now, I'm just uh, doing doing the proofs for an article for identities on world making in art and un- unworlding. It was a seminar I did on, on for, for the school materialist research over the summer, so I'm just kind of dotting the eyes on that. And um, yeah, I'm I'm quite interested in doing doing a little on on anti-realism and aesthetics mm-hmm. maybe in the next six months. Maybe uh, maybe something on on philosophy of technology. There's a fairly condensed chapter on philosophy of technology in post-human life. And I'd like to sort of revisit some of that in the light of kind of contemporary technological kind of concerns. I mean, mainly because things have just moved so fast since 2013 or 14. You know, I don't have a discussion machine learning, for example, or blockchain. Right. So there's all sorts of stuff potentially that could be kind of, if you like, weaponized for that. Maybe I'm thinking long term, maybe doing a kind of quote unquote sequel to snuff memories mm-hmm. as a sort of splatterpunk space opera you know I'd love to write space opera i mean you know right it wouldn't be you know it wouldn't be frank herbert but um <laughs> and it you know but i do like the idea of just you know using those tropes maybe as a kind of extension of of the kind of um the kind of worlds and unworlds that i was exploring in snuff memories and that kind again that kind of 
writing process, you know. Right. But we'll see where we go with that. I'm I'm fairly open at the moment. I'm really not even sure what my role is, you know, as a as a writer or you know, whether I'm doing philosophy or fiction, not even too concerned about it, but just I just feel quite lucky to be free to kind of explore these these avenues and see where they go. You know? Yeah. Well, David, we will let you go. Uh, I know that you have earned earned that that white wine as you. I think we all have, but I'm sorry, I you know <laughs> I can't share it with you. Ah, that uh, it's a very good sure we, white wine. We um, we all have our own little. Uh, we all got our uh, vices. Yeah, we have quotations. Uh, yeah, yeah, great. <laughs> Okay, well, well thank, you know, it's been been a ball to um, to to talk to you again and, and yeah. meet you, Cooper. And thanks, yes, thank pleasure. You, thank again, you so thanks much. for your attention and reading and you know consideration. So it's been been really nice. Well, we'll we'll be in touch when we release the episode, and yeah. and maybe sometime around the next next summer we we can touch base again because I would love to hear more about worlding and unworlding. I think that that in itself could be. To be yeah, well, episode. hopefully the some of that 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 material will have moved on by then. So um, yeah, that'd be fun to do. Brilliant, excellent, excellent. Okay, you have a you have a great great rest of your evening, and we yeah, and we have really a great rest of your you. afternoon. Yeah, okay. <laughs> thank you. Bye now. Bye. 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 Thanks again. Thank you. Welcome to the Machine of Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, send us a book at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. We appreciate any help you can give us that way. Today, we are talking to David Roden, who early this year in January, February, published a theory fiction, horror, erotic, surrealist novel called Snuff Memories. 